Okay, well, thank you for joining us for this month's From the Field Farm Chat with Idaho Wheat. I am Brittany. I am the Executive Director of the Idaho Wheat Commission, and we are joined today with by Heather Stebbings, who is the Executive Director, CEO, I'm not exactly sure which. Executive Director. Okay, Executive Director of the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association. And she is going to talk to us a little bit about the work that they do, why it's important to us, and some of the things that they have found or discovered um, relating to the Columbia Snake River Dams. So Heather, I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself and then we'll just have a, a conversation. Um, if you are joining us from home or your tractor or your pickup or where, whatever, I want to make sure that you know that you are welcome to participate in this conversation, um, ask questions, whatever. Uh, to do that, you can just unmute your microphone and we'll notice it and give you a shout out. You can use the buttons at the bottom of your screen, the reaction button to raise your hand, or you can type a message into the chat and we'll make sure that Heather answers that, that question for you. So, all right, without further ado, go ahead, Heather, and tell us, tell us about yourself. Okay. Thanks, Brittany, and thanks, Ryan. Appreciate um, being asked to participate today and being able to talk a little bit about PNWA and what we do. So, um, as background uh, for okay. PNWA, let me mute him. <laughs> as background, I'll start with you. How's that? That's good. Okay. So I don't know what you caught there, but um, I'm going to give a little background on PNWA and then myself, just so folks kind of have a little bit of context for um, why I'll be talking about what I'm talking about. Um, for PNWA, we're a trade association. We are based in Portland, but we represent about 150 members in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And the Idaho Wheat folks are one of those members, so thank you. Um, for, for supporting us in the work that we do. Um, but we essentially have all, all the folks at the table from the grain growers to the ports, the facility operators, the shippers, the tugboat operators, um, the river pilots, bar pilots, all the folks that care about moving cargo and people, we do have cruise lines too, in and out of the Pacific Northwest. And we uh, go back to DC and we ad advocate for federal funding and for policies to be in place to help support that movement of goods. And so we spend a lot of time um, working specifically on waterways all throughout the Northwest. Columbia Snake River System is a big portion of what we do, but not all of that. We work in Puget Sound, Washington Coast and Oregon Coast as well. And we try to um, have, have the funding uh, in place for things like jetty maintenance, channel deepening, uh, operating and maintaining the locks and dams so that the barges can operate. All of the things that it takes um, in terms of the federal component to get people and goods in and out of our region. For me, I've been executive director at PNWA for about a year and a half. Um, and I've worked for the association uh, for about 15, 16 years total. 
um, doing uh, kind of from the ground up. So communications I started with and then rolled into government relations and now I'm in this role. Okay. So tell us a little bit, um, you told us that you you work, you know, on behalf of all those waterways in the Pacific Northwest. What, what does that entail exactly? I mean, are you doing legislative work? Are you um, lobbying? Yeah, doing so for, research. Um, what what exactly? It it's a few different things. So we have, um, and I'll use the Columbia snake as an example, since I, I know we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, so for us, the agency that we work most closely with at the federal level is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They are the agency that is tasked with operating and maintaining all federal navigation infrastructure. So we try to make sure that that agency has all of the funding that's needed to be able to operate and maintain all of the elements of that infrastructure. So if we start kind of at the mouth of the river, which we kind of call the, the cork in the bottle, because if we don't have the mouth of the Columbia River adequately maintained, no cargo would be able to get in or out. And that would obviously hurt, hurt folks all, all around the region and the nation. So we work with the Corps of Engineers and we say, you know, we have the jetties at the mouth of the river. What is it gonna take this year to make sure that they can be fully maintained? And so we go back to DC and we advocate for that funding to make sure that it's in place for that agency. Um, sometimes that entails working with the, well, it always entails working with the White House to try to get that funding in the actual president's budget. But oftentimes the budget comes out, it doesn't have the, all of the funding we need. So we have to go work with Congress to try to get that funding plussed up so that when we, we have a final bill that Congress uh, puts out, that it has the amount of funding that we need for our region. And we do the same thing for dredging on the lower Columbia River. We do the same thing for every, all of the eight locks and dams on the system. If there's uh, dredging work that's needed up in the lower Granite Pool near Lewiston and Clarkston, same thing that we do for that. We also work on a policy component. So to make sure that the Corps of Engineers in particular, but we do work on, on things for other agencies like NOAA Fisheries when it comes to the regulatory side. But we try to make sure that the policies are also in place to help the agency be as efficient as possible um, in their process. With regard to the Snake River dams, the other component that we work on is the legal aspect. So we do have a subset of our members of about 30 of our members that fund the legal effort related to the operations of the Columbia snake system, um, primarily as it relates to the litigation on the Snake River dams. And so we engage pretty heavily in that. We've been involved in the litigation since 2002. Um, and so that's shifted a little bit. I think we might talk about that, but um, basically we, we are there to represent the voice of navigation, uh, irrigation, the growers, um, agriculture, uh, some utility folks in that legal effort. Okay. Oh, right. Go ahead. Heather, can you kind of uh, share with us how just how much product uh, or international trade happens on the Columbia River? Sure. Um, so we the latest numbers we have, and I will probably use some specific numbers because it's easy to talk about. Um, 
the volumes in that way. But um, the latest numbers that we have for are from about 2020. And the Columbia River Trade Gateway, so the deep draft portion, moved about 51 million tons of cargo uh, in 2020. That's probably average. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's less. But when we think about, and, and for grain in particular, so wheat, soy, corn, uh, it was about two thirds of that, 33 million tons of cargo just on, on the grain side. Uh, so, you know, we are the number one wheat export gateway, we're number two in the nation for corn and soy, and we're number three in the, on the globe for grain exports as a whole. Um, on the inland system, when we think about the locks and dams, we move on the barge system about eight and a half million tons of cargo through all eight locks. And then if we kind of uh, kind of zoom in in particular on the Snake River dams, it's about 4.2 million tons of cargo. And that's one of the highest numbers that we've had in about the last 10 years. So sometimes folks will hear, oh, you know, when we start talking about the Snake River dams, that cargo is declining. That is not, that's not accurate. We often see cargoes sustained or increasing slightly. And so 4.2 million tons is a really good number for the inland system on the snake. And that equals about 10% of all US wheat exports. So a lot of cargo we're talking about moving in on those projects. I know that frequently they, I, obviously these locks have to be repaired. Uh, annually or sometimes every two years on a, on a schedule. Um, how does that affect those numbers and, and exports down the river when they shut those locks down for repairs? So every year, the Corps of Engineers shuts down their locks in March for about two to three weeks. And they shut down the entire eight locks, uh, depending on what needs to be done, you know, for two to three weeks. And so that's what we call routine annual maintenance. For larger components, so the, I guess, just rewinding a little bit, the projects were authorized and constructed from, you know, the 1930s to the 70s. Um, so they're aging. And what we always like to try to tell folks is that just like, you know, highways, bridges, other pieces of infrastructure, we need to invest in the in the locks and dams as well and have these maintenance projects take place. So we do have what we call extended lock outages uh, every probably five to seven years recently. So the first one was in 2010, 2011, and we try to do them in the winter timeframe for a couple of reasons to try to limit impact to the growers and to the uh, shippers and the tug companies, but also um, to lessen impacts on fish. So we have a certain time of year where we can do in-water work like that. And so it takes place in the winter time. And that one was, I believe about 14 weeks. And so it took, and it was the first of its kind. So it took about two years of advanced planning, working with folks like yourselves, the growers, working with U.S. Wheat Associates to help deliver that message overseas and working with all of our members in terms of the tug companies and the ports and all of the folks. So everybody knew what was coming and what to expect. And um, we had, it, it ended up being a great success. What we ended up seeing out of that was a flurry of activity before the closure. The closure happened for 14 weeks, and then we saw a flurry of activity on the river after the closure. We didn't see a lot go to rail, 
So while tonnages may dip a little bit during those times, we didn't see a huge transfer to rail or something like that. Um, what we saw is that folks were really embracing the fact that we were, we had this two years of, of planning for them. Um, they don't obviously love to have the system down, but they understand that it needs to be done for the reliability and future of the system. And so we saw that again in, I believe, 14, uh, 2015, 2016, we have a closure like that next year in 2024, and we have another one on the horizon in 2030. Okay. What do you, obviously, um, the, the waterways are important to wheat growers, as you said, 10% of the, the U.S. wheat supply um, or exports goes, goes through that system. And you mentioned, um, as little disruption as possible to the fish. What do you say to people who say that the dams, because of the dams, the fish populations are declining, um, the dams are not, are pose a threat, I guess, a, a depredation threat to the fish supplies. What do we know about that really? There's a lot of science out there, science out there, um, what what's PNWA's response? Our perspective is that um, you know we do know that the dams have impacted fish um, through you know since they've been built there have been impacts um, and we do know that you know some promises have been made to the tribes that have not been met and so we kind of think about the dams like we look at it as a holistic approach to the conversation when we look at the projects. And um, I keep kind of going back to the Snake River projects because those are the ones that kind of get the most press and folks are really talking about, they're the ones that folks are talking about removing. But we're seeing, you know, millions of dollars that have been invested in these projects. We have state-of-the-art fish passage at these projects. We have other countries that come to look at these projects to see how they can do their fish efforts better. Um, so we're seeing upwards of 96, 98% of juvenile fish passing through those projects to make their way down to the ocean. Um, so while we know there are improvements that could be made at the projects, you know, and the Corps of Engineers and others are always working to do that, there's a lot of other stuff that's impacting fish on the Columbia River, in the Columbia River Basin and West Coast wide. So there is a lot of habitat work that can be done we can, you know, work in our, our um, ecosystem to improve toxics, you know, reduce toxins. The predator issues are a significant, significant problem for fish that are returning. We have thousands of sea lions that come swim all the way up to Bonneville, sometimes past there, that are, you know, eating so many salmon. Um, we have fish that are targeting juveniles as they're making their way through the system. And then we have ocean conditions. So we know that the climate um, impacts are affecting the food supply and the temperature out in our oceans. And so what, what a lot of science is showing is that ocean conditions are the biggest impact to our fish survival numbers, you know, overall. And so when we see, and it's not just the Columbia River, Columbia snake system that are seeing those impacts and where they're seeing lower returns, we're seeing that along the West Coast. So we're seeing the same returns come to uh, rivers like the Fraser River that are completely undammed. 
But the issue is that fish are going out to the ocean and something's happening. Um, we know so, uh, some things about what are what ocean conditions are changing and impacting the fish, but more needs to be done to understand that. But what we do know is that if we see good ocean conditions, we see better returns across the West Coast. And when we see bad ocean conditions, we see worse, worse returns across the West Coast. So um, for us, we're looking at what can we do across the Columbia River Basin and to understand ocean conditions and make investments that are on the ground, in the river, cleaning things up and lessening our predator issues. Um, we believe there's just a lot of work that can be done out there uh, beyond dam breaching. And so when we go to folks, we basically say, we support every salmon recovery effort out there. We just don't support breaching the Snake River dams. All right, Corey, go ahead. Yeah, I had a question on that. And I, I think, us in the industry kind of know that pretty well about ocean conditions and, and everything, but I guess two comments I had. One, it doesn't seem like the general public has any concept of that or predators or anything else. And second, is there a way to quantify ocean conditions at all? Or do we just basically go off the return numbers and say, oh, it must've been the ocean or is there something temperatures or I, I don't know what to, to correlate that to? I, I can say, I know that more work is being done to try to understand the impact of ocean conditions. And they do comparisons for the Columbia Snake versus you know other river systems along the West Coast, up in Alaska and in California. Um, I don't know all, all of the details and the technical components of exactly what they're studying out there. But I know that they do see that correlation between, you know, if there are West Coast wise, um, uh, a decline in sort of ocean conditions along the entire West Coast, they're seeing those impacts all over. But I don't know that they, they quantify it in terms of the numbers. They just look at maybe comparisons to other, other uh, portions of the West Coast. Um, I do agree with you that it is kind of switching gears to your first question, I do agree with you that it is tricky um, to get the message out to the general public. So that's something that we're always trying to do. We partner with others that are trying to do that in new and different ways and trying to, um, you know, penetrate the, the general public to make sure that they're getting um, information from all sides. And they're certainly getting information from us. We do have a campaign that we're running. It's called River Values. And Idaho Wheat is supports that effort and we work to do things like social media and um, you know billboards and um, newsletters and all of the things to to get to folks every way possible whether they're driving down the street or they're on you know TikTok or Instagram or if uh, they receive their information via email or even um, if they're streaming uh, on Netflix we have we have commercials and things like that so Folks are trying to get that message out there, but I agree that that's always something that we struggle with getting those messages in the in the hands of the general public. This is a Heather perspective, probably not a PNWA perspective, so I'll separate myself a little bit. But I think sometimes there are just you know folks on really wide sides of the issue that you're never going to reach, and oftentimes those are the most vocal on a lot of these things. Um, so. Uh, you know, we we work with our marketing folks and try to target those 
those uh, groups of populations that are kind of in the middle that are willing to listen to different messaging and um, that you know may be more receptive to receiving what the information that we're putting out there. But I do think a lot of the folks we hear about are often you know really really um, uh, focused on the environment versus a lot of other things or uh, you know it's just more difficult to reach those folks. Heather, yeah. I, the, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Corey. Uh, no, I was just going to comment on that. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I think all of us in this industry, a lot of times it, it's hard to find the, the people that aren't engaged uh, with this, but it's just frustrating to me. Like we got a record run this year and out, outside of our groups, I don't think I've heard anybody mention that or talk about it or acknowledge it in any way, shape or form. And I, I don't know what the right answer is either, but it's frustrating. <laughs> Heather, just to follow up on Corey's question, for those of us who might find ourselves in a conversation about this topic with someone who might be on the other side of the issue, um, when you talk about ocean conditions, what what conditions exactly? I mean, is it we know that the temperatures are higher and that poses a threat. Are there other things specifically that can be uh, cited, I guess? I think the other big one, temperatures, I think definitely play a big role. And the other thing is availability of food. So with the temperature change, with the temperature changing, we're seeing you know, different organisms that are no longer living there that the, the salmon and steelhead used to rely on. Um, as a food source. And so I think shifting food sources is the other big one. Um, but I'm sure there are a number of other factors too that, that I just don't get in technical weeds on, but those are the two that I hear about most, temperature and food availability. Okay, thank you. Ryan, I'm sorry. I no, think no that's okay. That. And Corey, I'm sorry for interrupting. I, uh, along those lines uh, with what Corey was saying about public public knowledge, I know the main concern with the general public always comes back to the concern of the fish population. We know and we advocate for the barging system. We understand the benefits that come from barging. Um, some key points, top points that we can share with others about the benefits of barging and how, how does that give us a competitive edge on the global market, having, having this barging system at our disposal? Yeah, sometimes we rely on you guys for that, that information too. But um, the the biggest thing that, that folks talk to me about, about the barging system and that we always try to let our members of Congress and other, other folks know is um, twofold. One, we think about the reliability of barging. So I know that, you know, there have been rail impact, uh, rail issues over the last number of years. Um, and the availability and reliability of barging on the system is extremely helpful in terms of having multiple modes of transportation. Um, and the other piece is uh, transportation costs. So barging really helps, having multiple modes of transportation helps keep overall transportation costs low. Um, that is something, you know, Brittany, kind of going back to your question, what did we see in one of those extended outages? What we did see was that for grain folks, the, the, the fact that we eliminated barging that allowed the rail uh, folks to increase their rates. 
And so if you lose a mode of transportation, you lose the competitive sort of check on other modes of transportation. And so we see that for barging as a really key element. We also see um, just thinking about the logistics of the system, you know, a lot of Oregon, Washington, Idaho wheat is what is put on the barges and, and barged to the lower Columbia River for export. And then a lot of Midwest product is what we see railed to the lower river for export. And so there is not a lot of storage on the lower river. Um, having the ability to have multiple modes enables the entire system to kind of um, work in a more streamlined fashion and for us to have, you know, uh, wheat products from, you know, far into the Midwest or soy or corn, us moving to the lower river too um, for export. Um, I'm going, Corey, I want to ask you a question, actually, if that's okay. From the farmer's perspective, it feels like we have been talking about this for years um and we still find we still find people in our state and across the country who say well why can't we just go ahead and take the take the or eliminate barging from the river how will that really affect us what as a farmer from a farmer's perspective and you farm in southern idaho what is your response to people who say my wheat doesn't go down the river so does it really matter to me <laughs> that's a pretty in-depth question or a lot a lot of variables but uh, the easiest way to put it is the price we receive as farmers is just a logistics number compared to the futures market and wheat will go wherever it can you know based on the the how, how efficient the transportation is to a particular place so if all the wheat grown in eastern washington and, and northern idaho didn't have the river system to get it to portland super cheap it will end up anywhere and everywhere else uh, just like our wheat in southern idaho does depending on the price so the, the easiest thing for me to tell southern idaho farmers is you're already competing against Southern Idaho wheat and North Dakota wheat and every other kind of wheat. You want to compete against North Idaho and Eastern Washington wheat too, because that wheat will start moving east and south and every other direction. If you take those rivers out, is is probably the best way to put it for farmers to understand. I, I know that's uh, not; it's a whole lot more in depth than that, but that's something farmers will understand. Is yeah, you got wheat that's a whole lot more efficient than what we grow down here suddenly competing against you if if you don't have that river system up there. <laughs> yeah, and that's, Heather, you were, you were saying that or alluding to that with railroads compared to river or barging rates, right? Uh, I'll also add, this is kind of a, it's a canola car that I'm supposed to be loading today, but, uh, the railroad in all their infinite wisdom and perfectness decided to spot the car at the wrong business this morning. So <laughs> just to give you an example of how terrible the rail is and they're not beholden to anybody, they, they, they're horrible to work with. And yeah, that'd be pretty bad if we were to say we're going to rely everything on rail to, to try and get down that gorge is that's impossible in my world. <laughs> We, we've also seen, you know, when we talk about um, 
uh, like farm inputs, because because we do know that a lot of fertilizer, tidewater barges, a lot of fertilizer upriver, um, and that that helps provide a reliable supply of that farm input for folks that are using that. So um, we do talk a lot about wheat, and one of the things I probably don't talk about as much is that that fertilizer sort of input component. Um, because oh. I, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I thought you were done. No, I, absolutely. When I ship canola up to Washington, they bring fertilizer back out of Tri-Cities. Uh, you know, it, it, that, that's a huge thing is to get fertilizer and inputs back up this direction. So, yeah, it's, I mean, that doesn't really utilize the upper snake dams, but it's just kind of shows the efficiency of that whole barging system is, yeah, I don't think people understand that a lot of Southern Idaho nitrogen actually comes up the Columbia River before it gets to us. Heather, um, from an environmental perspective, which is another argument we get a lot, um, what is the benefit of barging over truck or rail? Um, what would be, if, if we weren't able to use that system anymore, what would be the ramifications environmentally? We've talked, you know, we've talked economically and logistically, but we yeah, haven't really yeah. touched on this. There would be a huge economic impact if we did not have the snake or environmental impact if we didn't have the Snake River Dam. So I'll put the hydropower component kind of aside, although that's like a very, very big one. Um, but when we think about barging, barging is the most efficient, fuel efficient way to move goods. And so when we look at that 4.2 million tons of cargo that I talked about, you know, moving through the Snake River project, and you eliminate barging, you're gonna to have to move all of that by truck and rail. And we did do a study a couple of years ago and it showed that you it would require an additional 5 million gallons of diesel annually to put that product on rail or truck. And then if you extrapolate that out into increased air emissions, it would be about 1.2 million tons of CO2 going into the air. That's not currently going into the air. So there would be definitely some environmental impacts. And then of course, there's the hydropower component when you have clean green hydropower at the four Snake River dams that have you know, the capacity to power 1.3 million homes. And in particular, hydropower has that unique ability to be extremely responsive. So when it's really hot out and folks are going home at five o'clock in the afternoon, everybody's blasting their air conditioners, they have their electric vehicles plugged in, they've got their TVs on, and you still need everything to work properly. Hydropower is extremely flexible. So you turn on your lights, it allows the ability to just meet those needs really quickly. And there are no other renewable um, renewable energy sources at this point that can actually provide that what we call peaking capacity when you need it during those really hot days or, or even really cold days where um, you know you need your heaters on and things so um, two really big pieces of the puzzle but definite climate impacts, especially when a lot of our states and our nation as a whole are trying to reduce their climate impacts moving away from barging and hydropower is doesn't really make sense. 
And I'm glad that you brought up hydropower because I think we forget to, to mention that a lot when we talk about um, the dams, we just talk about the barging component and the dams do a lot more than just allow barges down the river. It's, it's producing um, that clean green energy that you talked about with hydropower. So thank you. The other big thing I guess I think about when I think about the dams and, and folks um, maybe on this are the irrigation component because Ice Harbor, the, the pool behind our Ice Harbor um, uh, irrigates about 55,000 acres of product. And so, um, you know, just a lot of apples, cherries, um, potatoes, all of those things, corn um, that would no longer be able to be produced um, would be extremely impactful to both our domestic fuel or our domestic food supply and then also um, our global food supply as well as just a huge economic hit um, to Washington State in particular. Yeah that that irrigation component is big is big also and we don't always touch on that. Um, so it's, it's pretty clear from our from earlier in this conversation that we all need to do a better job of, of talking about this and telling this uh, story a little bit and talking about the benefits of the river system. You mentioned your river values campaign on social media. How, how do we find that? Um, well, you can always get on our email list and distribution list. Um, we also try to funnel the information that is that we're putting together to um, to our email list of folks like you, Brittany, that can then kind of push those social posts out to themselves or retweet and things like that. Um, but you can certainly go to the web website rivervalues.com. You can look there. You can come to PNWA and find that information. Um, and then you know we're happy. You can go to all the social channels and find that as well. Um, and uh, like or share what we're posting on there. Um, but you can certainly come to us directly and getting on our email list is the best way to do that. And we can get on your, I know we are on your email list, but anyone listening to this can get on your email list just through pnwa.org? Uh, pnwa.net. .net, that's right. We and will, we will make sure we Oh, sorry. If you go on River Values, I think you can sign up right there too. Okay. And we'll make sure that we have those links in the uh, description under this video and uh, easy ways to connect through social media as well. That would be great. One of the things that one angle that we're trying to do for folks is basically um, we have developed and we put it out every month. It's kind of like an advocate toolbox. So it has talking points, it has like letters to the editor, it has um, things that you can do to weave into, you know, how you're talking about this issue in your own community to give you basically the tools you need to go do it so you don't have to try to develop the talking points or find the information yourself. That is great. Um, I think a lot of us would, would say more if we knew really where to start or what to say. We're, we're worried about saying the wrong thing. Um, or not covering the topic well enough. So to have that, basically the work is pretty much done for us from you already, Heather, and that's such a great uh, asset. 
for all of us to you to utilize. That is the goal. And I will say, you know, we're so in the weeds on this issue most of the time that if if folks like you or your listeners, um, your members have suggestions about what we can do better, that's always really great information to have too. Like, what do you need when you're out and about? So, you know, we can really maximize the campaign overall. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have hit our 30 minute mark. Um, Heather, I just want to give you a chance to kind of any last comments that you have, maybe biggest challenges you see, biggest advantages that, that you see coming um, for the river or for wheat farmers and what we can do to help you in your efforts to protect the river system. Yeah, thanks, Brittany. Um, I guess I see, um, you know, I'm not worried about the funding at this point. I think funding in terms of our support from our congressional partners is really great. Um, and when we think about the Snake River dams, there is a lot of talk about it, there's no doubt. But what I try to remind folks is that the ultimate decision with the dams lies with Congress. So these are federally congressionally authorized navigation projects or lock and dam projects. Um, it would require an act of Congress to deauthorize or breach or remove these projects. And I see no appetite in Congress to take on something like this. We've even seen over the last couple of years, some just some small tweaks that folks want to make um, you know, want to put something about Snake River dams in uh, what we call the Water Resources Development Act or a piece of legislation. And ultimately, it gets stripped down to the point where it's, it's no longer would even be effective. So we are not seeing Congress want to take on something this controversial. And um, I think that folks generally back there in DC really understand the value of these projects. So I don't see that being a challenge at this point. So want to provide some reassurance there, even though we do hear a lot of noise on the issue. Um, what I will also say is that what's really helpful for PNWA is when we can go back to DC and we can talk about stories on the ground from individual farmers about the value of the wheat, of the, of the uh, lock and dam system. So if there are folks that are willing to help provide their story as part of our messaging, we would be, you know, we would really love to have that in our back pocket. Um, especially, you know, if it's Idaho folks, as we go back to meet with, you know, different members of Congress that are from Idaho, it's really helpful to have those stories from your district or state to bring to those members of Congress. Um, and so just that, that is extremely helpful. Um, and then to help tell the story in your communities and to let us know what we can better, be doing better to help you guys do that on the ground. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I don't see any other questions as far as in the chat or microphones unmuted. So we will go ahead and let Heather get back to her work of keeping the waterways open and, and doing what we can't do. So thank you so much, Heather, for, for joining us today. Thank you, all of you who tuned in. Um, if you're listening to this later or watching it on YouTube later, thank you so much. If you have questions, go ahead and reach out to wheat at idahowheat.org. And if we can't answer your question, we will pass that on to Heather. And again, the email addresses and social media um, handles are 
for Pacific Northwest Waterways Association and the River Values Campaign are just down below this video in the uh, description. So thank you so much again, Heather, and we'll keep barging. No, thank you. Thanks so much, Brittany and Ryan. Take care.